0: CHAPTER Five, PARTS A AND B, OF ACES UP. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. ACES UP, BY COVINGTON CLARK. CHAPTER Five, PARTS A AND B. ORDERS FOR THE FRONT. PART A. McGee's Victory had a most salutary effect upon the personnel of the squadron they lost sight of the fact that he had been highly favored by luck in the encounter and that before luck coupled with skill the balance might well have been in the enemy's favor they began to look upon victory as a luscious fruit that would always be served to their table defeats were the bitter berries that the enemy must eat This attitude was greatly strengthened by another fortunate victory of a squadron stationed at Toul. This squadron, while it boasted some splendid fliers, was quite green and had much to learn, but despite this they too had been victors in their first encounter with the enemy, and in a manner quite as dramatic as had been McGee's victory, and it was more widely heralded because the victor was wearing an American uniform and the victory could be properly called the first score for the Americans. It came about in this fashion. A spring day dawned, cold and foggy, and three members of the squadron at Toul had gone on patrol. Their ardor was soon dampened by the chill fog, and they returned to their base. Shortly after their return, the alert was sounded, and the report came that German planes were coming over, concealed by the ceiling of fog. In a few moments their motors could be heard above the town that minute two americans left the ground climbing rapidly toward the ceiling of fog just as they neared it two german planes came nosing down they were barely clear of the blinding fog cloud when they were attacked by the american pilots so swift was the attack and so accurate the fire that both german planes were forced down and the two american pilots were back on the ground in less than five minutes from the time of their take-off. Luck, yes, luck and skill, the two things that must walk hand in hand with every war pilot. But there was no one to be found in all of Toul who even hinted of luck. Had not the fight taken place in full view of the townspeople? Had they not witnessed the daring and skill of these Americans? Luck? Ask the citizens of Toul. Ah, mais non, monsieur, they would tell you The German planes dived, so, whoosh, out of the cloud they came, and there were those precious Americans waiting for them, and in just the right place. Is not that skill, monsieur? Then taka-taka-taka-taka went their guns, only a minute so. Voila! The Boches are both out of control. Ah! That is not luck, monsieur. All along the front American squadrons accepted the verdict as evidence of superior flying ability, but McGee and Larkin, with the knowledge bought by bitter experience, knew that perhaps in the very next encounter the balance would be in favor of the other fellow. They knew, too, that overconfidence is an ally singing a siren song. They worked hard to dispel this overconfidence that had laid hold of the group, but their words of warning fell on deaf ears. This spirit of eager confidence was not peculiar to the air groups near the front. It was a part of the entire American expeditionary force. Where was this bloomin' war that seemed so difficult to win? asked the American doughboy. Bring it on. Trot it out. Let's get it over and get out of this parlez-vous land. Just give them a crack at Fritz. Say, in no time at all, they'd have old Bill himself trussed up in chains and carried back to the little old USA and exhibited around the country at two bits a peak. Guess that wouldn't be a nifty way to help pay for the war. And, as for the crown prince, well, over a hundred thousand American doughboys had promised to bring his ears back to a hundred thousand sweethearts. Just a little souvenir to show what an American could do when he got going. Part B This same boastful confidence was present among the pilots with whom McGee and Larkin were daily associated. But fortunately it was somewhat counterbalanced by the long-delayed orders sending one squadron to the front. April slipped away and May came. Still no orders. It was maddening. Yancey, Fouch, Hampton, Hank Porter, Rod, in fact all the members of the command save Siddons. Fretted and fumed and voiced their opinions of a stupid g h q that failed to appreciate just what a whale of a squadron this was. Siddons accepted the delay in the same cool, indifferent manner with which he met all the vexations of the army. It was as water on a duck's back. He seemed not to care a hoot whether he ever engaged an enemy. Then in May, with an alarming suddenness and force, the German crown prince began his great drive at Paris. His ears, it seemed, were yet intact, and those Americans who had so earnestly hoped to get them were soon to discover that the possessor thereof was all too safely ensconced behind an advancing horde of German infantrymen who were driving forward in a relentless, unhalting advance that struck terror to the very heart of war-weary France. In three days the enemy forces swept from the Aisne southward across the vessel and the their most advanced position came to rest on the Marne. For the second time the German army was on the banks of the Marne. Papa Joffre had hurled them back from this river in the first year of the war. Now Marshal Foch must do as well, or France was doomed. But Foch was handicapped. He had an army bled white by four years of dreadful warfare. The French soldiers, no less valiant than when the war began, found themselves too weak in numbers to stem the tide of an advance conducted by an ambition-crazed crown prince determined to reach Paris regardless of the cost to him and human sacrifice. Suddenly the French fell back, fighting like demons, contesting every inch of the way, but none the less retreating. In this hour of peril France turned her eyes upon the newly arrived and partially trained Americans, and in those eyes now almost hopeless, was a look of mute, desperate appeal. It must be now or never. All the roads leading back from the front were choked with refugees. Too weary, too heartbroken, too barren of hope to do anything but hurry their children before them and strain their hand-drawn heavy carts piled high with the household belongings which they hoped to save. Old men, old women, the lame, the halt, the blind, dogs cats goats with here and there a dog-cart all struggling to the rear many came empty-handed facing they knew not what and looking with pity upon the french troops who were moving forward to battle the enemy unto death ah said the refugees shrugging their shoulders "Fini la guerre these poor poilus of ours they cannot stop the boche they are too tired too worn with war if only we had new blood if only the americans would come now but no, perhaps it is now too late. Behind them, all too close, rumbled and roared the angry guns, guns of the enemy furrowing fields and leveling houses and villages, guns of the French in savage defiance protesting every inch of advance and holding on with a rapidly failing strength. Help must come now, quickly. And help came. Two American divisions, ready for action, were summoned by Foch. To move forward with all possible speed. The second division came hurrying from their rest billets near Chamon and Vessin, northwest of Paris. The third division came thundering by train and camion from Chateauvillain, southeast of Paris. Two converging lines of fresh eager warriors came marching, marching, the light of battle in their eyes and with rollicking, boisterous songs on their lips. At quick route step they came. This was no parade. This was a new giant coming up to test its strength. And all up and down the brown columns the giant was singing as it came. Mademoiselle from Armentier, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armentier, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armentier hasn't been kissed for 40 years. Hinky-dinky parlez-vous. Slush-slog, slush-slog went the heavy, hobnailed shoes, slithering through the mud and water of the roads. Mile after mile, hour after hour, at the end of each weary hour, a short rest, an easing of the shoulders from the cutting pack-straps. Ten minutes only did they rest, then down the long columns rang the sharp commands. Fall in, fall in, company, attention, forward, march. A few minutes in cadenced marching and then the command, Route step, march. Again the confident, boisterous giant took up its song. Goodbye, ma, goodbye, pa, goodbye, mule, with your old hee-haw. I may not know what the war's about, but I bet by gosh I soon find out. Oh, my sweetheart, don't you fear. I'll bring you a king for a souvenir. I'll bring you a Turk and the Kaiser, too, and that's about all one feller can do. Marching, singing, jesting, they pressed on until their advance guard met the plodding, cheerless, downcast refugees. The French peasants halted in their tracks, staring, unable to believe their eyes. Here, in the flesh, by thousands upon thousands was the answer to their prayers. Perhaps it was not too late after all. Here was new strength, new courage. Old men danced with joy, embracing their wives and children, embracing one another, and tears of joy coursed down their wan-lined faces. Les Américains, they shouted, vive l'Amérique, nous sauveurs sont arrivés. The Americans, long live America, our saviors have arrived. The cry spread. It rang up and down the roads and bypaths. It became a magic sentence restoring courage throughout all France. As for the resolute Americans, they merely plodded on, questioning one another as to what all the shouting was about. Oh, so that was it. Sure they were here, but why get excited about it? The Boche is breaking through, eh? As you were, papa, and keep your shirt on. And as for that old lady over there by that cart crying so softly, say. Somebody who can parley this language go over there and tell that old lady not to cry any more. Tell her we'll fix it up. Toot sweet. Ooh la la. Pipe the pretty mademoiselle over there driving that dog cart. Ain't she the pippin though? Say. Fall in. Fall in. Company attention. Forward march. Mademoiselle from Armentier. Parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armentier. A new giant was going in a giant that did not yet know its own strength a somewhat clownish giant singing as it came end of chapter five parts a and b